0: Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Good morning, North Shore. Hi, my name is Sanjay Merchant. Um, I'm a pastor here, and I know many of you guys, if you don't know me, that's, that's who I am. Also a professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, so it's always great to get back to Everett. Um, love being here, and you guys are a huge encouragement to me personally, and hope to return the favor. Um, Love you guys. We are starting a new series in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians for a while, and I hope it's going to be really encouraging and transformative for us. So go ahead and open your Bibles or open your Bible apps, whatever you have, uh, to the book of Ephesians. And our text today is, um, well, it's only only Paul's greeting. It's uh, verses 1 and 2 of the first chapter of Ephesians. And you might think, oh, The greeting, that's just um, sort of formal stuff. That's not really... With the apostles, that's never true. (laughs) Everything is packed with meaning. So let me read um, verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, just that greeting, it's so packed with meaning. And it might not seem that way, it just sort of seems like formalities, oh, that sounds like, that's how apostles talk, right? That's how they talk. Um, just in this first couple of verses, pay attention as we read Ephesians, as we go along um, in, in this series, how many times Paul says, in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus Christ, however uh, it, it comes out, in Jesus Christ is repeated over and over and over throughout this book, and it has a deep meaning, a deep important meaning. And he wants us to know that you and I are in Jesus Christ, vitally important. And over the course of this series, we'll unpack that, what that means and what the implication is for us. But to start us off in the series, I wanna do something that I hope is really helpful to us. I hope it's interesting to you in the very least, but also edifying to you and helps build up your spiritual life. Uh, I want to give some context for the book of Ephesus, talk about the, or the, uh, the book of Ephesians, talk about the city of Ephesus and some of the backgrounds so that when we're reading Ephesians, we understand it a bit better. And I've repeated this um, whenever I have the opportunity to do something like this. This is the reason we do that. This, this is the reason that we give contexts. We're a Bible church. Bible church meaning what? We want to read the scriptures, know the scriptures, and live the scriptures. The reason being is the apostles tell us to do exactly that. The apostles tell us that that's our duty. That's what we should do in honoring God. That's how we're transformed. That's how we're, um, you know what? We have some Bibles ready. I've I got way too ahead of myself. If you need a Bible, I, I forget about some of these things. Go ahead and raise your hand. Sorry, guys, you were waiting in the back. <laughs> if you need a Bible, so sorry. Uh, go ahead and put your hand up. Okay, there we go. Um, again, we're a Bible church. We want to read, know, and believe the Bible because we're commanded to do so by the apostles, right? And it's, it's transformative for us. It makes us into the image of Jesus Christ, and we glorify God in this way. So it's vitally important. Our problem being 21st century people, far away from the culture and the historical time frame, and even the language of the Bible. Um, we have a duty, the teaching team of this church has a duty to provide that context so that when we get into the Bible, you are facilitated in your Bible reading. You have some understanding. You aren't just dropped into the text like an alien, not knowing, right, the culture. Uh, Thankfully, you don't need to know the language. We have great interpreters and translators who, who give it to us in our language, but still, it can be so foreign. So that's one of our duties, is to provide that context, and then we'll often go verse by verse and unpack that. And again, the reason is we want to get that into our heads and then down into our hearts, and then we become different kinds of people, okay? So um, hopefully it's, it's interesting, but we also want it to be transformative, you know, for the glory of God. Imagine right now there are angels in heaven having a conversation and one asks, are there any worshipers in Everett? Let's make sure that the answer is yes, right? By really disciplining ourselves um, to to understand some of these things. So, let's start off. Let me tell you something about, so interesting, I love this stuff, so interesting, something about the city of Ephesus. So, ancient Ephesus uh, is actually not in the area that we would call Greece. We have a map. Um, these are, um, <clears throat> this, is, this is what ancient Greece looked like. Uh, you see, this would be the sixth century BC, around 550. You see all the red, that's Greece. Um, if you recognize that map, of course you know you're looking at the Mediterranean, there's Africa in the south and, and Europe in the north and, um, and uh, Western Asia there um, on, the, on the east side of the map, okay? And so you recognize that. Look how spread out and diverse Greece is. It stretches from mainline, mainland Greece. I mean, if you wanted to go to Greece today, you know on that map where you would go. You see all those dotted islands there on the right side of the map, the eastern part of the map, and, and that area, you know roughly what you're looking at in that little jut of land on the far right of the map. That would be what we would now call Turkey. They didn't call it Turkey back then. The Turkish people weren't even there at that time. So there were no Turks there. That was uh, The Romans would call it Asia Minor. We might call it Anatolia. But look at where all the Greeks are. Even southern Italy, the little boot, you know, in the middle of the Mediterranean. That's Italy. That was all Greece back then. That wasn't Roman. The Romans weren't even relevant. Um, the Latins didn't live there. Those were all Greeks. Can you believe that? Okay. And so, you might know some of this stuff if, um, if you maybe you, you had uh, courses on, you know, Western civics or something or intro to philosophy or something. You might be aware of this stuff from college, but... Um, Back in this time, the 6th century B.C., I mean, you see Italy, uh, and, and Italy's kicking Sicily, right? You, know, you, you see that? Um, it, very famous Greek colony of Syracuse. probably know the colony of Syracuse was there in Sicily. Okay, so the Greeks are really spread out. Around this time, you might know of a very famous Greek that lived uh, somewhere in this time frame by the name of Pythagoras, as in the Pythagorean theorem, right? He had a... Um, mathematics-based philosophy and cultic religion um, in which they thought that the whole world had this sort of mathematical harmony and they expected everything to be harmonious in a certain way. The first Pythagorean who figured out that the square root of two isn't rational was drowned. They drowned him for for that. (laughs) That was heresy. Because everything should be harmonious in a certain way. Imagine when you get to the square root of negative one, they hadn't even thought about that. I mean, that'll blow your mind. Elementary mathematics goes out the door, so. Uh, the Pythagoreans were very strict, but Pythagoras lived there. He lived in southern Italy. So he was a Greek, but he lived in southern, southern, southern Italy around this time. Okay, so you see the coast there of Asia Minor, right? A- the coast there of Asia Minor. We would now call that country Turkey. The southern part, now it's, you know, unfortunately we can't zoom in on this map, but just the southern coast there, that's where you're going to find Ephesus. It's a Greek colony. And there's a very famous philosopher who lives there in Ephesus around this time, in the 6th century. His name is Heraclitus. You might not know his name. I'm sure you've heard of Pythagoras. You might not know Heraclitus. Lived around the same time frame. Very famous Greek philosopher there in Ephesus. He was called Heraclitus of Ephesus. He was called Heraclitus the Obscure. Um, Kind of a weird, angry philosopher. (laughs) He was born in a Greek colony... And by the time he died, the city of Ephesus and all of Anatolia, all of those Greek colonies on the coast of, of Asia Minor had been conquered by the Persians, okay, in the 6th in the, um, century. So Heraclitus, he lived through some change, and he um, is very famous for saying this. He, he, his most famous saying that we know of is that you can never step in the same river twice, Right? very famous philosophical saying, you can never step in the same river twice. Now, what he meant was, everything in the world is always changing, everything is in flux, nothing is ever the same. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Some modern physics would indicate that there's some truth to that. This podium here, this table here in front of me, you know, at a molecular level, a physicist would say, isn't really staying still. Everything is in motion, right? Everything's moving. We think of it as solid and stable, but down at the lowest levels, we'll say there's always motion. Nothing is ever entirely frozen and motionless. Um, He had something like that kind of notion about reality. Everything is changing. So, if you say, tomorrow I'm going back to the same river I was at yesterday, Heraclitus would say, no. All of the water that was flowing yesterday is now long gone. It's totally new water, right? So it's not the same river. And that was kind of part and parcel to his philosophy. Everything is changing, everything's in flux. And there was a big debate. Some of the Italian philosophers um, would, would, would contradict him and say, no, 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 everything is staying and nothing is moving or changing. There actually is no change. And you get Zeno and his famous paradoxes that nothing ever changes, there's no motion. And this is an ancient Greek debate. In any case, it's very important what Heraclitus uh, is saying, right? Nonetheless, even though everything is changing, he said, there is something that's keeping the world in some kind of unity. I mean, it is the same river. I mean, he does say you can't step in the same river twice. It does imply that it's same in some sense, but not the same in another sense. So all the water molecules have changed, but it still has the same sort of structure and form and order. The thing is, the order of the world is invisible. Whatever is ordering the world, we don't see, touch, taste, smell, or hear. Everything that we sense with our senses is changing. But the invisible order of the world, something is keeping everything in order. What is it? Well, he called the invisible ordering principle of the world a sort of matrix which keeps the world from falling into total chaos. He called it halagas, halagas, or the logic, the logic of the world. Very famous idea that Heraclitus... Uh, inaugurated there in, the, in that time frame in, uh, in, in Ephesus. So he becomes a very important and influential philosopher. Okay? So just put a pin in that idea. I'm not just telling you just out of interest, that idea of halagos, very important. So that, again, comes from Ephesus. So we're looking at Ephesus in the 6th century. As I told you, here's <clears throat> what Greece looks like. Roughly, sometime in the 6th century, Cyrus the Great, who we read about in the Bible, he comes to power, and we see the rise of the great Persian Empire. And the Persians, you remember, this comes at the end of Old Testament history, the Persians release the Jews from Babylonian captivity and allow people like Ezra and Nehemiah to return and rebuild Jerusalem. And you remember, that's how the Old Testament closes, with the rebuilding of the temple, and Israel's waiting for God to return, and... Nothing happens, right? That's how the Hebrew Bible closes. God doesn't return. Until in the Gospels, we see God returning, Emmanuel, God with us, in the temple of the body of Jesus Christ. But Israel's waiting at the end of uh, the Old Testament period. Okay, that same Persian Empire comes to power and they conquer the whole Um, of of Asia Minor, and so all of those towns, all of those Greek towns on the coast of of Asia Minor, they're called Ionian Greece. Those are called the Ionian colonies, they called themselves the Ionian League. You remember ancient Greece, city-states, they kind of squabbled and fought among themselves, but they all considered each other Greek, they had the same language, the same culture, and so when the Persians came to town, well, the Persians were outsiders, and so they would band together and they would fight the Persians, and they, they would go back to squabbling among themselves, but if you were Greek, you were Greek, right? You were family, uh, even though we, 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 we had our squabbles, but when the Persians came, they um, conquered the Ionian towns, and then you probably know something about the great wars between the Persians and the Greeks and the Battle of Marathon and Thermopylae and that kind of stuff, and so uh, they were trying to, overtake mainland Greece, and so it was a you know major uh, set of events in human history, really important events in human history around this time frame. Well, around the 4th century, so we move forward 4th century BC, a few hundred years, very famously what happens is in northern Greece, the area called Macedon, we have the rise of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, very famously, makes these massive reforms. Actually, his father, Philip II, made these massive reforms in the Macedonian military and became so powerful, it was so effective, that he conquered all of Greece. And then before he was 30, between the ages of 19 and about 30, he swept through Persia and conquered all of Persia and became this Macedonian king over Greece and Persia. And the Greek empire stretched from Athens to Pakistan. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek. Totally Hellenized, uh, all of, um, uh, of Western Asia. And so the world becomes Greek-speaking and encounters Greek culture. And so this is around the 4th century. Well, Alexander the Great dies, and the Macedonian Greek Empire kind of fractures, right? And in that vacuum, of course, we get the rise of the Romans around the 2nd century B.C. into the 1st century B.C., you get the rise of the Romans. And I don't have a Roman map, but you know what a Roman map would look like. They own the whole Mediterranean, right? The Mediterranean comes to be known as the Roman Lake. The whole, all North Africa, all around is all Roman, including, as we see the New Testament open, uh, Israel, Jerusalem, it's it's all Roman, right? And so... Around the time in the first century, around the time of the death of Julius Caesar, you have this famous battle at Philippi for control of the Roman Empire, and from about 50 BC, uh, we have the reign of Augustus Caesar, um, Julius Caesar's nephew, and and, uh, he becomes the first kind of de facto emperor of Rome, and that's the Roman emperor when Jesus was born, right? When Jesus was born. So... Just kind of have this time frame in your mind because all of this is actually quite important to the city of Ephesus and actually understanding the book of Ephesians. 6th century B.C., you get the rise of the Persians. Ephesus becomes a Persian city, right? 4th century B.C., you get the conquest of the Macedonian Greeks, and it becomes, again, a Macedonian Greek city, 4th century uh, then, then sometime in the first century, second century to the first century, it becomes a Roman city, and so you get it passing. But all, all the while, it's a very cosmopolitan place, right? Um, you have uh, just this changeover and influx of all these sorts of people, but you get all of these different empires that influence it. The whole while, Ephesus is a very, very strategic, important place, right on the coast there, a, post, uh, a port city, okay? And so by the time we get to Roman Ephesus as we read in the New Testament. Roman Ephesus, uh, well, this is how it looks today, and so here's some, some pictures of it, um, so, some of my own pictures uh, of Roman Ephesus, and it, well, it's, it's in ruins. Ephesus is now a bit inland because, you know, a few thousand years, um, because of the built-up of silt, some towns that used to be right on the water are now a bit inland, and so it's a little bit far away. It's a very dry place. You can tell it looks very dry, but but here's um, how, Ephesus, how Ephesus looks uh, today. We learn a lot. We actually know more about the church of Ephesus than any other New Testament church. We know about the city, very large and important. It's comparable to cities like Corinth. It's even comparable to, to cities like Rome, uh, comparable to c- cities like Antioch and Alexandria, really important uh, cities in the Roman Empire. It was a huge and and vital center for worship. And as you know, the Romans really respected Greek culture. So in the New Testament, we know that the Romans are in authority, but there's so much about Greek culture that's relevant, especially Greek religion. It's very important. They were polytheists. As you know, they had many gods. Um, The god of Athens, for example, was the goddess Athena, right? So we know that. The god of Ephesus was a goddess by the name of Artemis. Artemis, she's very, very important. And so if you wanted to worship Artemis, you would go to the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. She was a fertility goddess. The temple of Artemis was um, an incredible structure. Unfortunately, it's, it's gone and there's just a plot of land there and there's a couple stones left, but it's been destroyed. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a really impressive building. <clears throat> Artemis was a fertility goddess, and um, the first time I ever saw a picture, not a picture, sorry, a statue of, of Artemis I um, was on a tour of ephesus, and I, I kind of went off the tour because the tour guides in in well we 're in Turkey, but the the, uh, the the tour guides of these ancient Greeks um, uh, ruins they always want to talk about the darn columns they want to tell us about the columns all the time, and these are Doric columns, and these are Corinthian columns. And my gosh, I don't want to hear about these columns anymore. I mean, the Greeks just love their columns. I don't, I don't want to, right? And so I'm getting so bored. It's, we're hot and we're in the sun and I can't hear about another column. So I, I sort of get off the tour and I find, um, you know, these ancient Greek sites. I mean, there's just so much history. Much of it is still, 21st century, it's just in a pile of rubble, just a pile of rubble, you would think that historians, they would sort through every little rock of significance. They don't. So much of it is there. It's just there in a pile. And you look at it, and you're like, my gosh, that's, this is this. Like famous biblical inscriptions are just there in the dirt and there's a couple cones around it and you can walk up to it. You can spit on it if you wanted to. It's amazing stuff. I walked up to a statue. I thought it was a um, carving of grapes. I thought it was like a bunch of grapes. And I walked up to it and I went, oh, that's, those aren't grapes. Uh, I know what I'm looking at now. She has many, many breasts, right? Many breasts. And so she's a fertility goddess, very strange looking figure, as you can imagine. <clears throat> so in the book of Acts, between Acts 18 and 20, we read about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And um, we get a lot of information about Ephesus. And in there, there's a, uh, there's a reference, the Ephesians talk about the um, stone that fell from Zeus the stone that fell from Zeus, the stone of Artemis, which fell from Zeus. We don't know exactly what that is, but um, historians think that what that is referring to is a meteorite that fell in or near Ephesus at some point in the ancient past, and the meteorite perhaps had a bunch of bumps on it, and it reminded them of Artemis' many breasts. And they said, Zeus sent down this stone as an item of worship to locate the worship of Artemis here. And that's why Artemis became the, the patron goddess of, of Ephesus. So, um, so her worship was there, and that's very, very important. So the city of Ephesus is a big, important town. And initially, we read, starting in Acts 18, we read that the church was growing in Ephesus, but they were not under the best leadership. There was a very powerful preacher there by the name of Apollos. Apollos was well-intentioned very dynamic, but he was a bit untrained, and he had some mis- mistakes in his teaching. He didn't quite understand the gospel, and so Paul sent a Jewish couple by the name of um, Priscilla and Aquila, who he had met in Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila had been kicked out of Rome. Claudius, the emperor of Rome, kicked all the Jews out of Rome because Jews and Christians They were all the same ethnic group. They were all Jews. But Jews and Christians were debating over whether Jesus was the Messiah. And it was so bad in Rome that it was disrupting commerce. And the Romans got sick of it, so they kicked all the Jews out. There was an edict to kick all the Jews out. And so he met Priscilla and Aquila, and they really had a keen understanding of the gospel. They were this really powerful evangelistic team, this married couple. So he told them, go to Ephesus. And they went to Ephesus, and they sort of retrained Apollos, and they gave Apollos a clearer understanding of the gospel. And that's great, because Apollos was, was a really um, powerful Christian teacher and uh, had the humility to listen to Priscilla and Aquila, And so that really helped change things in the Ephesian church. Eventually, Paul made it to Ephesus himself, and when he got there, he met some people Who knew the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist had taught, and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so this is how bad the teaching was among the church in in Ephesus. So when Paul gets there, things really change. He teaches them about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He prays for them. They begin speaking in tongues. And so they're really transformed through Paul's ministry. In fact, Luke tells us in Acts that some you know, cloths or aprons that Paul would touch, that would touch his skin, would be given to people who either had diseases or had demonic possessions, and they would be healed. So Paul's uh, ministry of miracles in Ephesus was was really powerful. It was so transformative um, in in Ephesus. He taught in the synagogue, the the Jewish place of worship in Ephesus for three months, and. As normally happened, he would go to the synagogue of any city or town that he would uh, start ministering in because he would go first to the Jewish community because the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so he would go to the Jewish community and he would teach the gospel there and argue from the Hebrew Bible that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, and the Savior of the world. And many would believe and many would Uh, Would would resist his teaching and would start uh, an opposition party and there would always be some sort of controversy And so after about three months uh, because of the controversy he moved his daily teaching From the synagogue to a place called the the Hall of Tyrannus So he taught in the Hall of Tyrannus for two years So he spent a good long time in Ephesus really did a lot of ministry in Ephesus and again, his ministry was so powerful. I, you know, I think he stayed there because God was working miracles every single day uh, through Paul and the other ministers there in Ephesus. People were bringing out books, occulted books and books of magic, and publicly burning them and, and, uh, and recanting their false worship and becoming Christians in droves. I mean, Ephesus was just this, you know, we know this term revival. I mean, Ephesus is the picture of revival, of total cultural change. In fact, it became so overwhelming. They would point at the Christians, Paul and his and his co-laborers and say, these are the men who turn the world upside down with their preaching. From the Ephesian perspective, these guys were turning the world upside down. It was a revolution, right? And the environment was ripe for rioting. And that's exactly what happened. A um, idol seller, you know, it was a place of worship and they would sell many, many idols. Um, Almost like you would go to a city and you would just buy a souvenir, right? A little kind of souvenir represent... You could still do this in Greece. You could go and buy a little uh, Greek idol. Most people wouldn't buy it as an object of worship. They'd just buy it as a nice little trinket, um, you know, for their mantle or something. But they used to buy these things, kind of like a souvenir, but it had religious meaning to them. And so they made good business out of making these little idols. People would come to Ephesus for worship. Well, it had gotten so bad in Ephesus, from their perspective, it had beat the church had made such radical cultural changes that the idol salesmen couldn't make a living anymore. It was destroying their business. So the idol makers started a riot. They got out into the streets, they grabbed a couple Christians, and they dragged them into the great theater of Ephesus. So you see the great theater there in the lower left. That's the great theater. You see how big that is? It holds about 25,000 people, and it's got this sort of open shape and you can imagine uh, a theater filled with people yelling and chanting and rioting and making noise would have just reverberated for miles and miles holds about 25,000 people you can com- compare that to the uh, Tacoma Dome it holds about 23,000 people right so similar in size so huge ancient theater They grabbed a couple christians went in there and they're rioting and and in Acts, Luke tells us that many people didn't even know why they were there, but they were all congregating. They filled the whole theater, and they were chanting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis is great, and it was a sort of pagan, riotous response to the Christian preaching and the ministry of Paul that had happened there for years. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, or your translation might say, Hail Diana of Ephesus. Diana is the Roman name for the Greek goddess Artemis. So she was called Artemis Diana, right? And they chanted that for two hours. Paul wanted to go in to the crowd and preach. Now that everybody's here, good. I can talk to everybody at once. And the church grabbed him by the cloak, (laughs) yanked him back and said, you're not going in there. They had to physically actually restrain him from going in. Eventually, a town clerk came, and he quieted the whole town, and he said a couple things. He said, first and foremost, uh, I don't think that there's any evidence that the Christians are blaspheming Artemis, okay? They're talking about their god. Um, I think maybe they were blaspheming Artemis. If you're a worshiper of Artemis, they're saying she's a false goddess. I'm sure that was happening. Uh, But the clerk said they're not blaspheming Artemis. And secondly, this is an illegal assembly. We are ruled by Roman law here. So unless you all want to be arrested, I think we need to disperse. So the clerk actually calmed things down and they dispersed. And so uh, the intrigue at Ephesus was very important in New Testament history. After that time, Paul left. Um, He left for Macedonia and and Greece for a while. And what he left, he left Timothy... um, uh, in charge. Um, it gave him some pastoral authority. So the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy are letters that Paul wrote back to th- Timothy about uh, pastoring in Ephesus. Let me just read to you what he says in 1st uh, Timothy 1, 3 through 5. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, as, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, so this is after the riot in um, in Acts 19, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So he says, continue to teach the gospel uh, that we established there. Don't let them get into these myths and endless genealogies. You remember what Luke talked about. They believed in magic. And 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 this sort of occultic religions and th- things like this in Ephesus were big in Ephesus. So don't let the church slide into that stuff, right? Continue on teaching the gospel. And you remember something about what Paul tells Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor, and many people despised him for his youth and didn't trust him. And he said, No, no, you're commissioned. You understand the gospel. You have the authority to teach it. Don't let anybody despise you for your age. Just continue on in the faithful preaching of the gospel, right? And so. That's sort of the intrigue, what happens in, in, in Paul's Ephesus. Uh, soon after, John, the apostle, moved to Ephesus and also continued on his ministry there. And so the gospel of John, first, second, and third John were all written in Ephesus by John as he is ministering and pastoring there. You know who came with John to Ephesus and lived out the rest of her life? Mary. Mary lived uh, with John, the mother of Jesus, John became her son, and she became his mother. You remember on the cross, as Mary's, or at Jesus' crucifixion, Mary's there with John, and she's looking up at the son that she birthed, nursed, loved, and now he's dying this horrific death. And what is her heart experiencing in that moment? Total, crushing horror and pain seeing her son die. And in that moment, Jesus, a man being crucified, one of the most torturous deaths humans have ever invented, he looks down, he sees his mother, who he loves, and he replaces the son that she's losing in that moment by by God's providence, right? She's losing her son because it's God's design that the world should be saved in this way. And yet he cares so much for Mary, he says to her, points to John, and he says, behold, your son. And then he points to Mary, and he says, behold, your mother. And so Jesus cares enough to replace the son that she loses, and they really become mother and son at that point. And so John and Mary move to Ephesus together, and John writes his gospel <clears throat> from Ephesus. And I told you to put a pin in what Heraclitus says. The opening line of the gospel of John is, en arke en halagas. In the beginning was the Word. Anarche, en halagos. Halagos, that term, comes from Heraclitus 500 years earlier. Heraclitus of Ephesus. John says, in the beginning was the logos, the Word. And all the Ephesians say, we know that. Heraclitus taught us that 500 years ago. But then he adds, the Word, the ordering principle, the logic of all reality that keeps everything in unity that makes sense of the world was with God and was God and so he makes a distinction between God and the Lagos and also says that God and the Lagos are unified and then he tells us in John 1:14 that the Lagos took on flesh and dwelt among us the Lagos is Jesus Christ so he uses Heraclitus's idea of the Lagos and informs us that the ordering principle the thing in which everything exists and has order is in fact Jesus Christ himself, the revelation of God. And so that's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. He leverages uh, uh, an idea, an Ephesian idea, to advance the gospel. Very, very important. John and Mary actually both died there, and their tombs are there in Ephesus. Likely that's actually their tombs. It's not just some weird tradition. Uh, Likely that we, we actually have their tombs there. There was a church of Mary established at Ephesus. The church of Mary existed for many, many hundreds of years. So in the 5th century AD, about a 1,000 years after Heraclitus, almost 500 years after the birth of Jesus, at the church of Ephesus, um, Christians got together and they were discussing a new idea that somebody had raised. Somebody raised this idea. A guy by the name of Nestorius raised this idea. He said... I don't think Jesus and the Christ are the same person. It just doesn't make sense. God being a human, that's not possible. I think it's something like this. I think Jesus is a human man born from Mary in a conventional way. Apparently, Joseph was his father. And so you get Jesus Christ. And what happened is the logos that John tells us about descended from heaven and sort of symbiotically indwells Jesus, like... um, like um, Eddie Brock and Venom, right? You've got two. You you know your you know your MCU, right? Okay, so you got Eddie Eddie Brock and, and Venom symbiotically. You've got two personalities in one body, and so that's what Jesus is. Jesus Jesus of Nazareth is a human. The Christ is the Logos symbiotically indeling, and you've got two consciousnesses, two personalities, and that's how you make sense of it. And so Mary, she didn't give birth to divinity, she gave birth to a human who is indwelt by divinity. And the logos is someone separate from Jesus. And the church got together in the fifth century at Ephesus in the church of Mary, in the church of Mary. And they they reviewed this, they analyzed this teaching, and they said, no, Nestorius, you're wrong. That is not what John told us. And very importantly, they were at the site where John taught these ideas 500 years earlier. They were at the Church of Mary, and they declared, it's kind of a weird roundabout way of making a declaration about this, but Nestorianism was wrong. Mary is Theotokos, not Christotokos, but Theotokos. What that means is the child that she born, Theotokos means she is the God-bearer. The child that she bore was fully divine. Nestorian said she's merely Christotokos, right? The bearer of Jesus, right? just the bearer of of a human. They said, no, 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 she's Theotokos, the bearer of God. That's where you get the Catholic language that Mary is the mother of God. Many people misunderstand that and think that what that means, even many Catholics misunderstand it, and they think what it means is somehow Mary has authority over God. Even worse, to think that somehow Mary precedes God? No, that's not even possible. Nobody precedes God. So that's not the idea at all. But what they wanted to emphasize is that Jesus was fully divine. So Mary is the mother of God. She, in other words, the child that she bore was fully divine. All of those ideas of the gospel and of the apostolic teaching are all centered on Ephesus, okay? So there's a lot there. I know I dropped a lot on you. There's a lot there, but hopefully that makes sense of a lot of things for us, all right? Okay, there we go. All right, now let's talk about the book of Ephesians. That's some of the background. Let's talk about the book of Ephesians. Sorry? little, okay, it's a lot, yeah. little, little preaching and response, yeah. I'm a classroom guy, yeah, so just tell me. <laughs> We're not ready for the quiz, Pastor. Okay, <laughs> next, next slide, I believe. A uh, little bit of the, uh, of the book of Ephesians. So the book of Ephesians is a prison epistle, After his time, after the riot, remember, he went to, Paul went to Macedon in Greece, and then he intended to go to Jerusalem. I forgot to tell you this. Let me tell you one more thing. <laughs> Paul intended to go to Jerusalem, and he didn't want to stop at Ephesus because he knew if he stopped in Ephesus, they'd never let him go to Jerusalem. So Luke says that they went by Ephesus, but he, he, he didn't want to be delayed. He didn't want to go to Ephesus. So they were going by Ephesus, and he let the Ephesian elders know I'm on my way to Jerusalem. So they rushed out to see him near Miletus. And the Ephesian elders were there with them, and he gave them, you can read about this in Acts chapter 20. Paul gave them a very tearful farewell. You can read this long speech that he gives to them in Acts chapter 20. He loved them. He loved the Ephesians. But he intended to go to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, they would arrest him for sedition, I mean, these riots and and all of these sorts of things, um, Paul is at fault for these, and so the Romans uh, would put him on trial and find out whether he had broken laws or not, and then uh, sentence him accordingly. The reason why he wanted to be arrested is he wanted to appeal to Caesar so that he could preach the gospel to the emperor of Rome. That was his intention, and you remember at the end of his life, he is in Roman imprisonment. To our benefit, he had the time to write a lot of epistles while he was in prison. So he wasn't doing practical ministry, he was sort of stuck in a room, often chained to a Roman guard or something like that, or under house arrest, he had a little bit of freedom at times, but he wrote a lot of epistles. And so he wrote Ephesians, he wrote back to Ephesus, it was uh, one of these epistles, and so Acts chapter 20, he gives this very tearful farewell, and it's, it's hard to get through. If you understand some of this background and history, and when you read Acts chapter 20, man, it, it, it'll, it's hard for me to get through without tearing up. This is the, the Ephesian elders. They hung on his neck and kissed him, knowing that they'd never see his face again. Can you imagine that? I mean, he was a father to them, and they hung on his neck and kissed him. Can you imagine having Paul, having Paul, having an apostle with you, and then knowing he 's gone he's never coming back you know it's making me tear up right now, but um, very moving. He ends up again in prison and he, and he writes uh, the book of Ephesians to them while in prison. He wrote the book of Colossians around the same time. so if you read Ephesians and Colossians together there's a lot of the same themes. you can see that in the time when he wrote these books he's thinking about some of the same things. So um, the book of Ephesians you can, at first, you can sort of roughly break it up into two big pieces, the first three chapters and the second three chapters. The first three chapters, uh, Paul really talks about how Jesus Christ has made peace through his lordship. He's made peace through his lordship. So it's about what Jesus has accomplished. A few weeks ago, you might remember, Damien talked about the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, right? The Roman peace. Romans had established peace in the world, or at least they applauded themselves for establishing peace in the world. Um, There was a sort of relative peace. It was a very brutal peace. It was a peace enforced by military law and crucifixion and things like that. If you don't keep order the way that we're telling you to keep order, you're dead. Okay, that's a kind of peace. That's a peace under threat. That's a sort of tyrannical peace, okay? But that was the Roman notion of peace. Paul contradicts the Roman notion of peace and says, "Mm -mm, nope. Jesus Christ has established a new peace in the world by tearing down the dividing wall between us. He himself has fulfilled the law. There was an important dividing wall in the ancient religious world between Jews and Gentiles. You have the worship of the true God, which the Jews alone claimed to have, and you had the worship of false gods and demons among the Greeks and Romans and Persians and so on. And the Jews would not associate with the Gentiles. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law of Moses, fulfilled the requirements of the law that we were or israel was required to live out and never did they never did that no one ever fulfilled the law jesus christ himself fulfilled the law which god requires and in so doing insofar as we are in him the law law is fulfilled in us right so you and i we don't prove our worthiness and righteousness to god through our good works but insofar as we are in him We benefit from the fact that he has fulfilled the law that God required. And so being in Christ is really important. And who is in Christ? He points out that both Jews and Gentiles are now in Christ. And so God has broken down the dividing wall between us. Really important. Um, Ephesus is such a cosmopolitan city. It's vital. If the church is divided between Jews and Gentiles, if there are first-class and second-class Christians, the church is going to fracture and fall apart. And so, Paul wouldn't stand for that, so he wanted the Ephesians to remember. So, let me read. Uh, You've already seen it, but God has eternally purposed to unify humanity in and under Christ. This is what he teaches. But because of God's grace, we have been made alive in Christ as a new humanity. Jesus has filled the demands of the Mosaic law. Jews and Gentiles are reconciled in Christ, and we enjoy peace with one another and with God. So, that's what Jesus accomplished. So, then in chapters 4 through 6, after telling us what Jesus has done, he says, okay, this is what we should do in response. We should live accordingly to what Jesus has done. So the themes of chapters 4 through 6 has to do with our relationships to one another, being in the Lord. And so Paul says in chapters 4 through 6, because we are recipients of God's grace, we must live holy lives and humbly love one another because we are empowered by one spirit we must use our various talents to build one another into a new temple with Christ as the cornerstone or a new body with Christ as the head, living according to Christ's lordship in all things. So, Paul is telling us that the Christian life, there's nothing necessarily heroic involved, right? If you really want to live for Jesus, like like your your fantasy life as a worshiper, (laughs) like, God, I really want to serve you. Think of doing heroic things, Going to far off places and preaching to those who haven't heard and learning their language and living among them, that's true faithfulness. That would be great. That would be great. That's not necessarily for everyone. Um, Laying hands on people and seeing them healed, that would be great. That would be great. No reason not to pursue such things. But that's not necessarily required. Because we can't even love or care for one another outside of the one spirit that unifies us. We can't even listen to one another without tribalizing and devolving into bickering and squabbling and warfare and hatred without the one spirit. We are multicultural. We are multi-ethnic, right? We are multi-generational, and that's exactly what the church should be. And the world should look at us and go, how, how is that possible? Because outside of the church, it's not possible. Outside of the unity that Jesus Christ provides, it's emphatically not possible. Think about, in our world, The kind of divisions that we have. I mean, we can just be blunt about it. We are told in our nation there is a white black distinction, a vital distinction. It is a dividing line. To the degree that that's true historically, or to the degree that that's maybe manufactured and people want to make us feel that way, we feel it. Is it true that there is such a distinction? Not in the church. Jesus Christ has broken that, down that dividing line. There is a red-blue rivalry and distinction. Jesus Christ has broken down those dividing lines. If we're not living in such a way that those divisions are broken down, then we are not living according to the one Spirit who has brought unity. Uh, so, for us, here's our response. Let's just think worshipfully about this now, okay? We want to ask in which areas of our lives <clears throat> do we fail to recognize Christ's lordship? In which areas of uh, of my life do I fail to experience Christ's peace? If we have animosity towards one another, brothers and sisters in Christ because of political views, cultural views or something like that, there's something quite wrong. We need to be reformed and unified in Christ. That doesn't mean we can't have disagreements. We can't have misunderstandings. We certainly can, and those do happen. But ultimately, we must be reconciled in peace. We cannot drive out others for these sort of ulterior reasons. And so, what can we do as we read through Ephesians, as we think through Ephesians? What can we do to use our talents to build up one another, um, and to trust God to make our and, and trust God to make our efforts fruitful in all of this? What can we do to be? peacemakers among one another. If we do so, we're doing what Paul entrusts us to do as believers having understood and received the gospel to live it out in this way, to be peacemakers and to show that we are ruled here at this church by one spirit, loving one another earnestly, and we're glorifying God and the angels will say there are worshipers in Everett. All right, amen, amen.